tonight we are going to uh, handle a very, very brief portion of Scripture, but it takes needs to be taken some time with. Uh, not because it, we are ignorant of it, that certainly isn't the problem. It may be the problem that we are too familiar with it. And so we are going to hand, be handling Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 22. Uh, last week we looked really at the what the f- works of the flesh were. Uh, we now get to uh, look into the positive side of things. And we're going to take, a not just tonight, but next week as well, obviously, because I'm not going to get very far in this list. I already know that. I don't intend to get through this list of the fruit of the Spirit. So I'm really going to get just the first half of verse 22 is all we're going to get through, but it's going to take us into some other passages and hopefully some uh, development of some ideas. Uh, We tend to look at this as a very passive piece of Scripture, and that is unfortunate. Uh, In fact, it is uh, injurious, injurious, there we go, injurious to your Christian walk. To see this as something that is not your participation, that is something you get, and we're going to look at that a little bit. First, let's go, Lord, in prayer as we get ready to handle this, the first three facets of the fruit of the Spirit. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word before us, and we pray your Spirit might guide our thoughts and our heart's interests during this time, that you might keep us from distraction, both within our own minds and lives, and in our midst in this Place. And Lord, we want to focus our attention upon your working and your truth, and we pray that uh, uh, you might help us to do that, and knowing that you have promised, if we ask. And so we do ask of you, Lord, today that you might uh, guide us into your truth, and we do thank you for it, and we pray that it might uh, reap some uh, lasting effect because of our time spent tonight in your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So, we have the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we have a... Let's just start off by talking about that first little phrase, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, When I talk to a lot of Christians and they reference these nine, um, we find, um, I think, several attitudes that are erroneous. And they take... They detract from the passage. They detract from its purpose and its meaning and what it anticipates. First of all, what I often find, especially among younger Christians and sometimes among older ones as well, um, is the idea that the fruit of the Spirit is akin to the gifts of the Spirit, not confused with them, but akin to them. That is, that it is something that the Spirit does and I just get. Um, and if you want to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, yes. The Bible very specifically says that he, he gifts us with spiritual gifts so that we can minister and serve. And to each one he gives differently um, according to his purposes and will. And so to one he gives these gifts, to another he gives those gifts. And that we are to then develop those and minister in accordance with those gifts he's given to us and gifts Again, we distinguish from talents. Those should not be confused either. Your natural talents um, are things that you do because of your proficiency. Spiritual gifts um, 
are often in the areas of your natural weaknesses. Uh, and Paul recognizes this. He says, when I am weak, that's when God is strong. And so I need to serve him in my weaknesses um, and not just in my strengths. Uh, if all I'm doing is serving in my strengths, God, I get the glory, not God, but when God uses me in my weaknesses. So I, I find it very interesting. This is, has nothing to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, that when people talk about their giftedness, they usually end up with a list of their natural abilities and things they're comfortable with. And I don't want you to serve where you're comfortable in the church. I want you to serve where you are extraordinarily uncomfortable so that when God blesses and uses you, that you can give him the honor, glory, and praise. Because you'll know that it's none of you. Uh, it is all of him. And that, in, that is how I got in a pulpit, to tell you the truth. Not because it was a natural interest. In fact, um, I pretty much figured I was the last guy who should ever be in a pulpit. Um, I entered a speech competition once, and I was the only entrant and got second place. So there's where my natural abilities are, okay? Uh, that's a true story. <laughs> Could you not? Minnesota, talents for Christ. And I entered the, the speech category. I was the only entrant, and they gave me a second place award. Uh, so that's my natural abilities. Uh, and pretty much at that point, High school, I was like, I'm never doing that. You'll never get me in front of anybody again. Never again. The lucky Oliver, maybe I'll teach children in Sunday school. Maybe that's the best that God could do with me. So, um, outside of your natural gifts. So, that's your gifts. That's God coming in and doing something. You're kind of a passive recipient, but you do have responsibility to use it. And a lot of people take that perspective that the Spirit does this in me and for me and to me, and they bring it to this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, that somehow this is something that God has to do in me. And it can't be farther from the truth. And again, we see it in the context of what we've been studying, that the fruit of the Spirit is obviously linked to the command in verse 16, walk in the Spirit. And so the idea of fruit is very different than the idea of gifts. A gift you don't work for, you don't earn, you don't deserve. It is imparted to you by someone else. But fruit is a very different thing, correct? Fruitfulness, the fruit that is of the spiritual nature, um, involves some cooperation and coordination. So yes, you must have a tree, but you also must have the nourishment for that tree, the sun, the, the water, the soil... You must have this cooperative to produce fruit. And so um, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, while we give it uh, ownership to the Spirit, it is generated and developed in us not as a gift, but rather as a result of our cooperation with the Spirit. He does his part. We must do our part. When we walk in the Spirit... Then, the end result of that relationship will be fruit. And so this is not something God is going to come down and just give you. These are the uh, outworking of your activity with the Spirit. And so I see a lot of people just sit back and say, well, I'm waiting, you know, I got these fruit of the Spirit. You know, I'm waiting for God to lay it on me. I need more of it, you know. And it's somehow God's fault because he didn't do his part in, the, in this in granting it to you. I haven't gotten that. 
Um, no. Uh, and then others think, well, I haven't picked that fruit yet, as though the fruit is, and they just really destroy the metaphor there and what its purpose is in, in, intended there. You know, I got to go out and pick that fruit. Well, no, you're really um, more intimate to it than just picking it. You are intimate in the development of it. That in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit provides the power, the Spirit provides the wisdom, the Spirit provides that facet, but you are surrendering your will to it. To Him, sorry. You're surrendering your will to Him, and now you are walking in step with Him, and the end result of that cooperative relationship is this fruitfulness. And so please distinguish the idea of giftedness and separate that from the idea of fruitfulness. That somehow you're passive. You are not passive in the fruit of the Spirit. You are an active agent. You have a necessary role. And if you are not participating in that role, uh, this list and others beside it, um, you can't get to. You can't attain to this. Um, if you're just going to sit back and wait for God to lay it on you, uh, or it's something you're going to have to go out and take. But rather, you have to be active agent. You're walking the Spirit, and as you two are walking together, here is the work that is done. Remember, these are being contrasted to the works of the flesh. These are really the spiritual works, evidences, results of walking the Spirit. Now, the second thing I want to help us distinguish about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, many people associate, especially the first three, but, but many of these, they are associated in, in, again, a very passive way that these are states of being. That they are um, related often to our feelings. Um, they are uh, more internal and that's really contrary to the Hebrew idea. And yes, Paul's a Hebrew man, even writing to Galatian Christians. Um, and to the ancient idea of these words, even love, joy, and peace were handled tonight. And we get the idea that these are somehow uh, things that are we feel or have inside of us. Um, but we certainly don't associate many of these things with our actions. And that is problematic, at least. That's going to create problems in your life because all of these are active elements. They are not just things you feel. They are not just things that you uh, think about. Um, uh, these are actions. These are things that should be evidence. And so, just like the, the works of the flesh are listed for you, they are very active. Certainly, there is, there is lust internally that expresses itself in adultery, fornication, and, and uncleanness and lewdness, that set of them. Um, we obviously recognize that there is an internal facet to it, but what we are contrasting is what we see are these acts of the flesh. And now here are acts of the spirit. These are actions. These are not feelings. And, and even some of these words that we associate with feelings, some of them particularly, uh, two of them, more so even, I think, in the terms of the first one, love, we've 
we've done a pretty good job of understanding that as more of an action than a feeling. Um, but even for joy and peace, we often associate that with a sense of being, a uh, 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 feeling, uh, things like that. And we're going to try to change your thinking a little bit about that. That's why I'm taking so much time on the first three. And so the fruit of the Spirit is not uh, just something that uh, is a sense that you have, but rather or it is uh, an action. It is going to manifest itself. And that is a word you'll read uh, and it comes out in a lot of my reading. They keep coming out that, that the Hebrew way in the Old Testament looking at peace and joy and love was that it was a manifestation of. That is, a manifestation just means a showing, that it shows, shows something about you. And so we often think of peace as something very internal. But in, a, in the Hebrew usage and, a, and in the Roman period even, to some degree, um, we have really the idea of peace being a manifestation. It, it's something that we are, that, that it shows in our actions, in our uh, speech, in our attitudes. And so it, it's exuding. It is not just uh, inclusive. It's not just something we possess. It's something we do. We do joy. We do peace. We do love. These are things we do, not something we have or enjoy or, or possess. Um, and I hear a lot of people talking about the fruit of the Spirit, something I possess. Yeah, I have the fruit of the Spirit. And I was like, no, you do the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> and so the fruit of the Spirit uh, are going to, and that's why, um, interesting, at the end of verse 23, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. It says, against such there is no law. And so the idea of law is what you're doing. There aren't really laws for thought life and for states of being, but there are laws about your actions. And so, again, it is connected to what you do. And so don't think of the fruit of the Spirit in a passive way that you're getting it, um, like a spiritual gift. And don't think of it as a, a something that is disassociated somehow from action, that is a state of mind or being. Um, because that really isn't what it's calling us to. Now, Galatians uh, 5, like much of Galatians, because Galatians really is an early writing. And so it kind of gives us a, a framework that Paul uses in many of his other books. We, we've referenced again and again and again Romans. Um, and we're going to see him really uh, draw on this and develop it even further. Um, if you think of Galatians as as any early writing and, and as an author my earliest notes my early even my earliest versions of a chapter that I might write uh, are really skeletal uh, that is they have the, the the nuts and bolts of here's how here's how this idea or this uh, thing works and and it doesn't really have it all fleshed out and explained and, and expanded upon that I do later on. And so that's why the process of writing is such a lengthy one, is because you start here. Well, Paul over time took this nuts and bolts book, like Galatians, that's very concise, and expanded on it here and there, and used the same themes, sometimes the very same words, and develop them more fully. We have kept referencing you back to Romans for some of it, 
Now I want to reference you to another portion of Scripture, and that's in Colossians. So let's, having just knowing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, we'll just stop at those first three, because that's all I want to study. Let's turn to Colossians 3. Let's just look at Colossians 3, where Paul, again, is the same author, writing many years later to another group of Christians in Colossae, and uh, which is really a region rather than just a single city. And Colossians chapter 3, we really, and we have almost the exact purpose laid out in chapter 3 is what we've had at the end of chapter 5. But it's a whole chapter now instead of just uh, the last 10 verses, 11 verses. So what are we going to talk about? Well, here's what your old flesh was like. That's the first, you know, I mean, he says you died, your life, here's what your life used to be. In verse 5, he says, put this to death, stop all these things. You see fornication, uncleanness, you see all the same stuff from the other list, Galatians, but it's more full, it, or more, it's fuller, or more full. I've been in Mexico too long. Uh, it's fuller, it's more developed. Um, well, similarly, the fruit of the Spirit is going to be here. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And that's joy, by the way. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, do you see almost identical list, but a fuller list? Colossians 3, pretty much almost every facet of what we have limited down the fruit of the Spirit to these nine elements um, is there in Colossians 3, plus. But you notice that in Colossians 3, it doesn't say these are the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, he makes it more emphatic that you have a responsibility to put these things on. He uses a different metaphor Instead of a tree bearing fruit or vine bearing fruit, he's talking about clothing. You're going to put off the old man and you're going to put on the new man. And here, so you have a very active role in this. This is not something that you just sit back and, oh, i got to get the fruit of the tree. Or you walk out there and pick it. No, you've got to put it on by walking the Spirit. And, uh, and we see the interrelationship. He develops a little bit more, but the same themes are there. And so, what do we find? We find that love is... An action that I'm to be engaged in. It says that I, above all things, and this is similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to put on love. This is part of the clothing of Christianity. These are This is the fruit of Christ in us. This is spiritual fruit in your life, is that love begins to characterize your relationships one with another. Now, not love in the sense of, oh, or not love in terms of permissiveness, all those wrong definitions of love the world has, but rather a Christ-like love, which, yes, brings us to exercising wrath when that is necessary. Wrath of God is a loving act. 
Even when it throws you out of the Garden of Eden and condemns you to death, it's a loving act. You don't have to live in your sin forever. Um, then you have a loving provision. And so we often talk about the provision. We often act like that's the only thing that's loving about God. Well, he has a lot of his patience and sending prophets and sending preachers and giving you all these opportunities to make things right um, is his love. And so we have Christ-like love. That is a commitment to seek the welfare of others as much as we seek our own or more. Sacrificial love, say I'm going to put the needs of others as a priority in my life. I will exert my energies and I'll pour myself out to meet their needs. And this is the power behind missions and evangelism. I am willing to sacrifice my earthly life to deliver a message of hope that's eternal to people who don't think they want to hear it. And in response, they hate me and want to kill me, but my love for them demands that I go to them. The love of God in my life demands that I go to them and sacrifice whatever it takes. If, it, if I have to lose my job, and I have to lose their friendship, if I get kicked out of the family, if I'm not ever invited to Thanksgiving again, uh, whatever it is, if I'm excluded from their parties, um, if I'm not invited to the office thing, whatever it is, I, I don't, those things I'm willing to lose because I love you enough to tell you this necessary truth. And that means that and I'm going to set this godly standard. And so this is love. And so love is, is not we're not talking about feelings, and we're not talking here about um, permissiveness of the ideas, but rather that we seek their welfare, just as Christ sought ours and gave himself for us. We all know John 3.16, right? What is love? He had warm fuzzies about you, he sent you a little card, he, what? He loved us, and you know, so he was permissive toward us, and he loved us and died for us. For God's love the world, he sends only the God's Son. Whoever believes in him shall eternal life. He loved us and sent his Son. He sacrificed his Son on Calvary's cross for us. This is love, and this is something that we need to put on, that we need to engage in. And this is not something that we passively wait or some feeling that we have towards people. I love everybody. And, and I hear this. I hear it all the time. And I got to tell you, it just, um, it aggravates me. Okay. I hear people say, and they use, I love you and love you and things like that and passing sometimes just friends and, and, uh, and, and um, sometimes just strangers. And, and it's like, it stops meaning anything. It means nothing. It's, it's comparative to goodbye. Love you, see ya. It's like... I'm very frugal with my word love in my life. Frankly, my kids will tell you that. Um, every now and then, do you love me? And then I start singing the song from <clears throat> um, Filler on the Roof. Do I love you? How can you ask the question? Isn't it obvious? But I want to keep that word meaningful. 
And just going around saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, doesn't mean anything. What is meaningful is when we put it to action. And when you see the sacrifice someone gives to help you, that helps them not at all, you can identify that and say, that's love. He loves me. Why? Well, look at it. He bends over backwards every time I want or need anything. He'll go out of his way to take care of us, to address our needs or interests. Sometimes not even our needs, just stuff we want. And there he is. And this is how we define God's love. Um, I would challenge you to find Jesus telling people over and over again that he loves them. The one who uses the term the most is John. Um, and interestingly, he uh, qualifies it over again, over and over again. You can't say you love God and not keep his commandments. That you can't, you, but we think, oh, we can use the word, the word's on our lips, but the truth is in our minds. From Jeremiah this morning, thought I'd throw that out at you. And so I would much rather not be on my lips and very evident in my life. This is the work of the Spirit. So let's go on to the next two. Like I said, love, I think we, we have a pretty good handle on uh, as an action, and, and not just a feeling, and not just a word, and uh, but it's an action, a sacrificial uh, act towards another, seeking their interests and not my own. But with no expectation of something in return. And of course, we use the word unconditional. That is, they don't need to earn it because they can't. And so there's an unconditional facet to it. Now we come to the idea of peace and joy. And these are probably the two that are most often made feelings and something I possess, something that uh, I sense. Or, and, and I'll hear people that, oh, I have such a sense of joy, such a sense of peace. And they're associating it with this, and that really is very foreign to the ancient idea of peace and joy. And so let's go back to Colossians real quick and just look at their use. Uh, I'm going to pick out um, peace. And I want you to see uh, its usage there. It says... Uh, Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. So we have this concept here and the word rule there is, uh, is kind of interesting where uh, it's comparable to, uh, it's not rule as mandating like a king, it's more of uh, making judgment calls. Uh, in fact, some people would put the word umpire there. Let, let the peace umpire your heart. How does peace umpire my heart? Now again, we think the heart is the place where our feelings are. That is, if you want to talk about feelings in scripture, you'll find the word tender mercies or bowels of mercies. That's when you're talking about your feelings. How do you feel about things? When it's talking about your heart, it's talking about your will. What is governing your will? What is umpiring your will? And God's intention is that peace 
should umpire your will. The peace of God should umpire your decisions. That is, that we have a, and it's no mistake that in the verse, it talks about be thankful. Thankfulness, contentment, understanding that I'm already the benefactor of so much of the grace and mercy of God puts me in a state that now my decision-making is being directed and umpired, if you will, by this settledness that um, drives my decisions. And so I am not concerned about getting more stuff in my and the peace of God, where he says, be content with such things you have, because I will never leave you nor, nor forsake you. Well, you might say, well, that's a sense of peace. Um, contentment is much more than that. Contentment is a, is a decision and of the heart and an act of your will. I will be content with such things I have. Why? Because he says he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. Um, I have enough. God has promised to always meet all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so because I've already received so much and because I am walking in the spirit, I have this thankfulness about me that shows forth in a peaceful action. And this isn't just seeking peace with people. That is one facet that will come out. And again, we find in both passages, Galatians and Colossians and Philippians and a lot of other ones, that our instruction is to uh, live at peace with each other. Um, Don't provoke one another or envy one another. And so this peace is not a feeling. It is a commitment that says... God will not leave me. He is supplying all my needs. I do not need to fret and worry. I do not need to be uh, out there coveting. Okay? So we have this comparison against what we saw up here in the works of the flesh uh, as the uh, outburst around the jealousies there, the uh, uh, selfish ambitions that none of those are present. Instead, my ambitions are governed by this thankful, content spirit that decides that I am not going to pursue things for myself. I don't need to. The Lord's with me. I don't need to pursue these things. I can pursue the things that please Him. And that is what peace speaks of, and I have of these out of order, but that's because Colossians spoke more peace. And then, let's back up to joy. Is it joy just being happy? Is it just a feeling? No! Uh, what is the action word we usually think of in terms of expressing joy that has joy in it? Rejoice. We use the word rejoice. Um, and that is out of that root word of joy. And, and especially in the Old Testament, you'll find that whole idea is expressive. And uh, just as peace is expressive, um, that I know the end. I know the conclusion. So um, there is no worry. There is no coveting. There is none of that stuff. But rather, I am content in what I have. I am satisfied with God's goodness. It is sufficient for me, and I know it. His promises are sure, and there's a level of confidence and and sureness there. 
that exudes out of me. And the same thing with joy. The joy is understanding that I have a position before God and it will express itself. And the way they talk about joy in Colossians, um, without really using the specific word, but he develops the idea of joy, is not a feeling. It is the dwelling of the word of Christ in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And this is great. Teaching and admonishing one another, not by preaching sermons, but by your songs that you're singing. Hmm. Now, what songs do we sing? What songs do our kids here sing? My kids pick up on some interesting songs. They only know like one phrase of it because that's all I know is one phrase of it. And they hear me sing it and then they pick it up. Um, and some is some pop stuff from the 70s and 60s. And some is even older than that because I was listening to older music then as well. And uh, But, well, we ought to be teaching and music teaches. It's a teacher. It's an admonisher. Encourager. Uh, uh, admonition is more than just encouragement. It is it is spurring people on to do right things. And so we are to teach one another. We are to admonish one another. Uh, we are to have the word of Christ dwell in us. We are to do all this in our rejoicing. Now that the scene, the only way to express rejoicing, no, um, there's shouting, there's there's all kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways to rejoice and to have joy. And it is a possession that is irregardless of your feelings. You can have joy. I am joyful when I'm sad. I, I, there are things that sadden me when I see Christians going out and sinning. It saddens me. It does. It doesn't rob me of my joy, though. I can still sing to the Lord. I can still call people to righteousness by using psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, teaching and admonish them to what? To dwell in the word of the Lord. It does, that sadness does not ever rob me of my joy. The joyful fruit that is there is in your expression. And and you've heard me share this example every time. I just went to the doctor Monday. I got my shot because the pollen started. And I noticed a lot of you don't get a shot, poor people. Dr. Terrence Reagan, Rio Rancho, he's the guy. Tell him I sent you, maybe I'd get a kickback out. But uh, he's the catalog dude. So I go in there, and you all go to the doctor. What's, they always ask you the question, have you... Have you been depressed? Right? What's my answer? No. No, that's not my answer. I'll say no. Have I not told you this like ten times before? My answer when they ask me, um, do, you, do you have bad feelings or feel like you want to hurt yourself or have been depressed? And my answer every time is, never! Now, does that mean I'm never sad? No, it means that I'm never depressed. Because depression is to not have the joy. It's to not have that expectation. It is not, it's to have a lack of confidence in the Lord. And so, uh, 
No, I don't confuse sadness with depression. If things don't go my way, they're still going to go God's way. <laughs> Why should I be depressed? Either the Lord's promises are sure and true, or they're not. And if I didn't believe in the promises of God, if I didn't know them, if I didn't see the power that's behind them, then certainly I probably would be depressed a lot. But no, I don't get that. Do I get discouraged? Sometimes. But never depressed. Because that would mean I didn't have the joy. So my answer to the nurse every time, and they all look at me. And I just look at them. They say, and I've had one nurse say, challenge me, never, you've never been depressed? I said, never. At least not my adult life, since I was 12, and I accepted Christ as my Savior. I've not known that I've ever Because it's not about feelings. It's about truth. And it's going to express itself. It's going to express itself in song. And, um, and sometimes I sing sad songs because I feel sad. But it's, I'm still capable of singing. And, and I can still remember that God is in control. And my hope isn't in this world and because my hope is in this world, my joy cannot be robbed by this world. No matter how many things go bad, they can't rob me of my joy. Can they make me angry? Yes, they can make me angry. They can't make me depressed. They can't. Because that means that the joy of the Lord is not here. And that my joy isn't built upon stuff happening my way, or the right way even. It is about confidence in the Lord. And so how is it expressed? It's expressed by singing, most often. Sometimes by humming. Sometimes by whistling. And sometimes by tapping your toe. But it's expressed. Always in Hebrew minds that joy is an expression. It's something, it's a manifestation, it's a showing of a understanding that God is God. And so, yeah, I get a little upset when I look out on Sunday morning or Sunday evening and during the same time and, oh, we've got to go through this. It's like, you know, well, we just... You know, and I know some of you young people, I know you can read. These words aren't coming so fast that you can't sing them. The problem is you don't have any joy in your life because you don't want to sing it. Because selfishness will take away joy with your conscience or you're so conscious of your of what people think about you. Um, that's I, I think David is just a spectacular illustration of joy. Uh, sometimes joy is expressed by dancing. Don't talk to my kids about my dancing, okay? But sometimes joy is expressed by dancing. I love David out there. Rejoicing as he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant in. Strip those clothes off and let's get at it. And he's going to dance before the Lord. He's going to sing. He's shouting. Uh, that was a noisy, active thing. That's joy. 
Let's not think of joy as, you know, a feeling that it comes and goes. No, that's happiness. Joy is solid and it expresses itself always. When you hear about people's countenance, what does their face call you to? You know, there's always your face always screwed up like you're never you have nothing to look forward to. We have eternity to look forward to. And many times both peace and joy, especially in Hebrew scriptures, are linked to eschatology. What's going to happen in the end? Because I know the end, nothing in the present is going to take away my joy. Right? Let me give you an illustration. Okay? Um, let's say uh, that you, uh, what's it called when you, you just, they don't record it on VHS anymore. Let's say you recorded a football game, your favorite team, and uh, you want to watch it now. You're going to sit down, but uh, someone spilled the beans and you heard the end score. Okay? Now, you know your team already won. Right? You know your team wins in the end. Now, they fall behind really bad and do stupid things in the whole first half. Three quarters, they're doing stupid things. But you know the end score. Now tell me, what is your spirit like watching that bad first half when you know the end score compared to if you didn't know the end score? Ah. You see, if you don't know the end score, then you're getting upset. You're getting mad. Oh, how can they do that? What stupid guys? Why would they throw that pass? Why can you hold on to that? You're yelling at the TV. But if you know the end score, you go, boy, they're going to overcome all this. That's going to be amazing. Can't wait to see it. Even when the bad parts are, when they're fumbling the ball, when they're getting interception, when they get penalized, all these bad things happen, and, but you know the end score. So it doesn't upset you. <laughs> Because you have the joy of knowing the end. That is the Hebrew idea of joy. We know the end. Why should anything in between, even if bad things happen between now and the end, we know the end. So I'll be, well, that's kind of bad, but I'm not going to jump up and down and scream and, and get depressed and angry and, and shoot myself or anything like that. Because I know the end. Can't rob me of my joy because I know the score at the end. Whole different perspective. And that's joy. We know the end. God, what God has for us. So why? <laughs> why should we be singing all the time? Why can't we, even when bad things happen, we can just kind of smile at us. That's going to be overcome. I don't know how God's going to overcome that, but it's going to be overcome. Because he promised. And I know the end score. And I can't wait to see how he overcomes this deficit that I experience right now. But if I don't know the end, that deficit can be disastrous, right? And I have no joy in it. I can have some, some frightening feelings that can move me to do horrible actions. And, and you see people... You know, walking out of games, just like the Lobos the other night, one of Joyce's patients was like, we walked out of that game, and then we had to pull over in the car on the way home and listen to it because they came back and won. 
<laughs> you see, we do terrible things if we don't know the end because we have no joy. But because we know the end, we can sing, even in the midst of hardship, of, of bad things happening around us, because this is a, this, we aren't confined to just a knowledge of this. We have a knowledge of that. And with our eyes stayed on that, we can sing in the midst of this. And that's why those saints of old could sit in prison cells and you could beat them with rods and whips and rip their fingernails out with pliers and bust their teeth and, and pull their beard off and, and all those things, send electric currents through them and they could still have joy because as bad as that got on their physical body, as painful as that was, they knew the end score. I will be near the throne of God. Should these torturers slay me? That's the end score for me. So they can't rob me of my joy. And this is something that comes by walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is a daily occurrence when I'm reminding myself, I know the end. I have the Spirit within me. I have the promises of God surrounding me. I have the power of God moving me. I have all of this that none can take away. So why would I ever get down because of the circumstances of life that happen to flare up now and then? Can't rob me of my joy. Can't remove my desire to serve. And it will not touch my peace. And joy and peace are very closely linked in a lot of passages because they're rooted in contentment and understanding that the end eschatologically and also the thankfulness of what we've already experienced of God's goodness and mercy and grace and therefore there's a sureness that he will finish when he started. So I have peace and joy that's expressed not something I hold in high that I have and hope it doesn't go away. No, it's expressive. It exudes it out and should be there. And so we should be singing with all of our heart, mind, soul. We should just belt it out. Not whether I know the song or not. And I've had a few times I've belted out some weird things and kind of smiled. But um, we need to recognize this expression of joy. And if somebody wants to condemn us for it, well, the, the gal that did that to David was his wife, and she was childless for it. God judged her, not him. For sneering at his expressed joy. So be ready to express it. Don't worry about people laughing at you. God hears their laughter, and he's going to deal with them. But he also hears your singing. And he will rejoice in it. He will receive that. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for this offer, this opportunity you give us to put on 
love, joy, and peace that we can lay hold of it more and more and uh, have it define us and that when people see us and engage us that they will uh, recognize it right away and that nothing of this world can ever take it away because it's something more important than anything on this world. Lord, we thank you and we pray for your forgiveness when we have forgotten, when we have stopped walking in your spirit, we've walked in our flesh and gotten down and, and uh, forgotten that we know the end, and that you are there, and that your promises are sure, and you are faithful.